Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. But the key reason what attracted me to GMI was the co-op program. Now remember, I had no money and I came in with $3,000. And so I had to figure out how am I going to pay for school? That was simply the biggest issue for me to figure out how do I pay for my college when I am not actually eligible for loans or grants because I wasn't a US citizen. I had to scrap it together. And one way to scrap it together was to find a school that I could pay for. And so once I figured out that GMI had this 100% co-op program where you went to school half the year and you went to work half the year, that was the, the moment that sort of drove me to that connection saying, I think I can afford this because I'd be working the second half of the year. Hi, I'm Tim Troop Noonan, your host for Horsepower to Hyperloops. And that was Ash Chopra, founder and CEO of Scion Capital in San Francisco, talking about how he started his improbable journey from India to GMI, now Kettering University, with just $3,000 in hand. It's an inspiring story of self-belief, adaptability to change, an engineer's ability to solve problems, and an unbelievable work ethic that has taken him to great success in two industries, automotive and wealth management. Ash Chopra, I uh, appreciate you uh, joining us today on Horsepower to Hyperloops. Thank you, Tim. It's my pleasure to be here. And, you know, you and I had a chat actually out in Silicon Valley, where you live, and your story is just fascinating. You began in India, and where you grew up in multiple places, I guess, and then found GMI, now Kettering, and kind of wended your way to Michigan, and now on to your current role as founder and CEO of Scion Capital, a boutique multifamily office serving Silicon Valley. But start me back with your childhood in India and how that developed what your circumstances were as you began to grow up and think about college? I grew up in India until I was 19, almost 19. I came to this country right before my 19th birthday. But I did high school in India, all over India, in fact, as you introduced, because my father was in the military. My father actually is one of seven brothers and one sister. And he decided that he didn't want to go into what all the other brothers were doing, but decided that he was interested in flying. And so he joined the Indian Air Force when he was a young kid and ended up staying in the Air Force for over 20 years. So my family moved around as most military families do. And we moved all over India. We were in New Delhi, we were in Assam, we were in Bangalore, Kerala, Mumbai. So we moved all over the country. And one of my earliest memories is that I used to move schools quite a bit because my family would move. 
but also within schools, if you you know went from elementary to junior high. So even within the same town, obviously you would move schools. I remember having about 10 different schools in 12 years. So we moved schools up quite a bit. And it taught me a very important skill, which is how to make yourself feel at home despite being thrown into a new environment. And that was very useful to me when I came to the United States because I knew nobody. I just showed up. That's a pretty useful skill. How do you, uh, can, can you give me a sort of a, a hint of what a couple of the pillars of that skill might be? I think the first thing I would tell you is you have to be open to change. The idea that you get thrust into change can be very discomforting or unstabilizing for most people. And, and it is because you, you don't have the same routine. You don't have the same friends. The weather might be different. Your living conditions might be different. And I just learned how to thrive on that. It was just everything was a fun journey. In fact, I also remember that my parents, while they weren't very wealthy, were very good about travel. And they always wanted to show us new experiences. So I remember traveling all over the country and just getting this love of seeing a new place and immersing myself in a new place. In fact, the other skill that it gave me, as you had noted before with me when we spoke, I don't have much of an accent, but I grew up in a foreign country speaking Hindi and English like a local. And one of the skills, this movement, one of the opportunities it gave me is that I am good at picking up local accents. So if I move to the UK within a few weeks or a month, I will start speaking English like a British person. <laughs> and I'm not even trying. The crazy thing is, it's not like I'm trying to change my accent. My brain just simply tends to do that for me. So what you're basically saying is you learn to embrace the moment, embrace what's coming down rather than the road, rather than fighting it and assimilating into it. So your family, your, your immediate family was in the... Uh, military, but your extended family had a, a slightly more colorful industry in which you were uh, somewhat uh, being encouraged. Is that correct? My father's oldest brother was a very famous movie producer in India, and my father's youngest brother was a very famous movie producer in India. And so between the sort of the two pillars of the family, a bulk of my family was in the movie business or the television business. And I remember when I was thinking about coming to the United States, my family, uh, my parents were fine with it. They, they told me I could make the decision myself, but my extended family wasn't immediately supportive. They really wanted me to stick around and be part of Bollywood. You know, in India, the movie industry is called Bollywood. And like my father, I was a bit of a black sheep and didn't want to do that. So I really wanted to strike it out on my own. And that's what I did. Do you have any other siblings or cousins that, that are, in fact, followed that generation into Bollywood? I do have one cousin who, who did follow the family into Bollywood. And I have an immediate sister who didn't stay in India either. She ended up moving first to Michigan, moved around the world a little bit, went back to India. But now she's finally settled in Miami. Even though you wanted to go to the United States... Tell me why you wanted to go to the United States, but you didn't right away. You went elsewhere initially, correct? I first started college. I started a year of college in India. So after I finished my high school, 
I wasn't immediately confident that I wanted to go. And so I ended up starting my first year of college in a terrific school in India, one of the best in New Delhi called St. Stephen's College. I was lucky to get in. It was an amazing school or is an amazing school. And I happened to apply and um, they do something different. They actually not only look at your scores, but they also interview you. And so my scores were good, but they weren't amazing. But where I think I nailed it was the interview. And so I was offered admission. I started my first year in college there. But my dream of coming to the United States and studying engineering here wasn't sort of dying out quietly. So I ended up continuing to push on that path. So I left St. Stephen's after the first year. And the engineering part, is that just the way you were wired? Is it you always like taking stuff apart and putting it back together? Or I was a tinkerer. Always as a kid, I would take stuff apart. My mother would give me the iron, the, the, you know, and she's like, this isn't working. Can you go figure it out? Just take it apart. Couldn't put it back together, but I certainly <laughs> take it apart and try to see if I could fix it. But I would be doing that with bicycles, with electrical equipment, all kinds of stuff. And so I just had this natural passion for building and unbuilding things. And I just couldn't get that to go away. Were you on a path for? liberal arts or something at St. Stephen's? or I started actually in what they call BSc General, Bachelor of Science General with a chemistry minor. Mm-hmm. And don't ask me how I got into chemistry. I think it had to do with slots. They basically went down the list and said, Ash, you can get into BSc General and the next available slot, slot is chemistry. Would you be interested? And I said, yes, I'll take it. So it wasn't that I was choosing chemistry. That was the spot I got into. So you decide to go to, you say, look, I, I, I this isn't working. I'm not getting where I want to go. I've always wanted to go to the United States. So you decide to do that. Tell me about that journey. I had a somewhat difficult path, actually, because I had been debating coming to the United States. I wasn't certain, but I really wanted to go check it out. And so my parents were supportive. Again, like I said, not very wealthy. And they said, here is some money. My father actually went to a local bank, borrowed $3,000. You know, he was able to get a loan based on just, I guess, an unsecured loan, as they call it. And so he took that $3,000 and gave it to me and said, go find yourself. And if it doesn't work, come back. There's no harm, no foul. If if you want to spend $3,000 and go figure it out, but come back if it doesn't work. And so I arrived in the United States actually on a visitor visa with the idea that I was going to just check out the place. Ended up looking at a bunch of different colleges. I had started applying when I was in India just to kind of get my foot in the door to see you know which college might be the right place. But sort of a shorter version of the story is that I ended up finding GMI. And we can talk a little bit about that. But I didn't go back, right? So I was here. And one of the issues I had in the subsequent few years that I I had trouble converting my visitor visa into student visa. In fact, I was here for two years. And I remember distinctly that I kept applying to what was called the Immigration and Naturalization Service at the time, INS. And I kept asking for a conversion of the visa and they kept turning me down because they said that at the time that I made entry into the United States, I didn't declare my intention of study, which was a misstep. I didn't recognize that I was supposed to do that. So anyway, I ended up 
INS almost got to the point where they were starting deportation proceedings against me. And so instead of being... Even though you were, by that time, you were a student and they're still thinking... I've been a a student for two years. And so even though that process was about to start, I decided that instead of letting the U.S. government deport me, I would just simply leave. It just made no sense to me. And so I ended up leaving the United States. I actually left GMI for, I think two quarters and ended up leaving, going back to the to India and then applying for a student visa at the United States Embassy in New Delhi. And I remember the guy that interviewed me was absolutely floored. He was shocked that I was there in front of him. And uh, the reason why he was shocked is because nobody leaves. If you're in this country illegally, Nobody ever walks back out of the border to say, I'm going to go back to my country. I'm going to apply for the right visa. I'm going to come right back. And so I think that's what allowed him to give me the visa because he said, here's a guy that actually came back. Nobody else would have. And so he actually gave me the student visa. That's amazing. And and so you were actually, I assume the stu- the, the visitor's visa was for six weeks or something like that? Six months. The way visas work is they issue you a visa for either a year or five years, which means you can enter the country within that period. But once you arrive in the country, you're given six months to stay here as a visitor, and then you must leave. And in my condition, I ended up not leaving after the six months. So I was what they call out of status after that six-month period. So I was trying to convert my out of status into something that was legitimate in the United States. So you finally finally had to... uh... Go back to square one and start all over from the visa standpoint. Started it all over again. And and look, there was a chance, Tim, there was a chance the U.S. government would not have given me that visa. Yeah, I would think. Yeah. I would never have finished my education in GMI. Man. Well, tell me, first of all, there's before you even got here and when you got here, there's 2,500 colleges in the U.S. Now, you you can narrow it down by which ones of them are strong in engineering. But how did you get the GMI? The one benefit that I did have is I have family in the Michigan, Detroit metro area. And so it wasn't lost upon me that if I was going to run into trouble, it'd be better to run into trouble next to family so I could sort of reach out for help. And so my main focus at the time that I was looking at colleges was schools in Michigan. I also happened to have a very close friend in in Pennsylvania. And so I had sort of taken this approach that if I find something in Michigan or find something in Pennsylvania, I'd be sort of close to people that I could reach out to help for. And I had no idea, no concept of distance, you know, how easy or difficult would it be if I was in California to get to somebody in Michigan? I just said, you know what, I'm just going to be close by. So in case I need help, I could take care of it. And so you began looking around, you started out looking at college guides and stuff, right? Look, there was no internet back then, right? And I remember we used to go, my mother and I would go to the American Library in New Delhi. And I would pick up these really big books, barons and so forth that were colleges. I mean, you know, there'd be 200, 300, 500 colleges in those books. And so you literally had a page with one picture of the campus and an address and a phone number and and a brief description of maybe the, the programs they offered. But it was literally a page. And I had no good way of getting to know these schools. So what I started doing is I would write letters 
to these schools, basically saying, send me some information. And I would mail them out 20, 30 letters at a time for several weeks. And then I started getting some brochures back. And these schools would send a brochure to somebody in India and it would cost a lot of money in stamps and postage. But anyway, I would have a bunch of these brochures that were sitting around and I would look through the brochures and try to decide whether I wanted to put in an application or not. That must uh, sound absolutely prehistoric to current high school students. Absolutely. So why didn't you end up in Lansing or Ann Arbor or State College PA? Actually, there's a very important reason for that, Tim. So... I went through this program of applying to a bunch of different colleges, got into quite a few of them. And remember, my English was was spoken. It was good. It was fine. But it wasn't American English. My my style of writing was very different than most college kids. So it was a miracle that I got into any of them, but I did. But the key reason what attracted me to Michigan, to GMI, was the co-op program. Now, remember, I had no money. And I came in with $3,000. And so I had to figure out how am I going to pay for school? Yeah, I was going to say $3,000, you know, then might have gotten you through October. Today, exactly. it might get you through orientation weekend. First, so, first yeah. That, exactly. that was a big issue, money. That was simply the biggest issue for me to figure out. How do I pay for my college when I am not actually eligible for loans or grants because I wasn't a U.S. citizen? Wow. And so I had to scrap it together. And one way to scrap it together was to find a school that I could pay for. And so once I figured out that GMI had this 100% co-op program where you went to school half the year and you went to work half the year, that was the, the moment that sort of drove me to that connection saying, I think I can afford this because I'd be working the second half of the year. Now, that was still a few years after the split from General Motors. So they had tuition, unlike 10 or 20 years before that, where there was virtually none. But right. still, the money you made was able to offset the tuition to a well, large so, extent. So what what became the way that I accomplished that was, yes, I, I whatever I earned at my co-op job, I would save. I also had the privilege of living with that family that I mentioned in Michigan. They were very kind and they hosted me for the time that I was actually working. So when I would work, I would stay in their house in Bloomfield. And when I was at school, I would just pay for school. But the money that I saved during my co-op was what I used to pay my tuition. And I still had to pay for room and board. The way I paid for that was I used to work between two and three jobs on campus every term to try to make enough money to pay for room and board. Like in the kitchen or stuff like that? Actually, my first job when I landed at the GMI dorm was I would wash dishes in the cafeteria. And the reason why I picked that job is because it paid the most back then. Minimum wage back then was 385-ish. That particular job paid $6. It was a brutal job, but I could work two hours and make $12 every day. And so I would eat my meal. I had a plan at that cafeteria. So I would eat my meal and I would go put my tray on the conveyor belt and walk around to the other side and pick up my tray and then start washing all of those uh, dishes that were on the on that conveyor belt. Wow. Yeah. That, that's really, given the intensity of the, 
a workload at GMI and even today at Kettering, working a couple hours a day is a lot. It wasn't uh, just a couple hours. So I had three jobs. I used to wash dishes. And I, I think that only lasted for a couple of years because it was a really brutal job. And at some point I was like, man, there's got to be a better way to do this. And I also was, for a good period of time, the operator of the GMI phone line. So if you called the GMI 800 number, I would pick up. Wow. And I had a big console in front of me, and I knew all the phone numbers by heart, and I'd route the calls to whoever they wanted to talk to. Yeah, I had a few hours every day when I wasn't in class. I would sit on that terminal, and I would route phone calls. You know, and I had my books out, so I'd be studying. And whenever somebody would call, I would sort of direct them to the right place. So that was my second job. And my third job is I became a tutor. So GMI would pay me to tutor other students with their classes. So I had several hours that I would take per week of tuition that I would give to kids, other kids. Wow. Well, that I... If my kids weren't out of college, I would play this clip for them when they were in high school. Fortunately, they had a pretty good work ethic, but it, it's it's impressive. So now, which engineering were you in and who was your co-op with? So I did what uh, most people fondly refer to as M-E-W-E suicide. And so I have two degrees. I have an electrical engineering degree and I have a mechanical engineering degree from GMI. Because you had so much time on your hands. Yeah, and, and <laughs> I was feeling unaccomplished. Actually, it's interesting, Tim, you say this because I didn't start with the intent of getting two degrees when I started at GMI. You know, I have this really weird bone in my body. I just cannot sit still. And when I sit still, it makes me feel like I am not accomplishing enough and therefore I need to run harder. So remember, I had to skip out of GMI for a few quarters because I had to go back to India. And so what ended up happening is I started GMI in 1989. And because I had to skip out, I was no longer in class with my mates, you know, the folks right. that I started in 1989. And so I started to think about, well, how am I going to make sense of the fact that I am now a year behind everybody else started with or almost six months behind? The way I made sense of it is I'm going to do two of them. And that way I can justify in my brain that it took me longer because I have two degrees. So I ended up starting to double up my load in class. And there was a bit of a hurdle. And the hurdle was that most kids would take around 16 credit hours, 16 to 18 credit hours. GMI allowed you to take 23 credit hours without paying another dollar. But if you took 24, you had to pay for that extra, extra credit. And so guess how many credit hours I was taking every turn? You took 23. I 23, like to the T. I would like find classes that I could nail that 23 number. And so I started to take classes in mechanical to get that second degree. So call it the, the later half of my college years was packed with 23 credits per term, but I had a blast. It was such a fun time. I was in a fraternity. I was enjoying the time with my brothers and I had a big schedule and I would tutor and I would work at the operator office. Wow. That's, I worked actually just as hard as you did, but when I was in college, which wasn't Kettering, 
but I was working at trying to get the units per semester down to under 10. See, <laughs> that was a different, different approach. So you are have got these two degrees, and where are you working for your co-op? My first job was with a company called Ovonic Battery Company. And and in hindsight, what an amazing start for somebody to start in a battery company, right? In this day and age, when batteries are kind of gold, I started in 1989 in Troy, Michigan at a battery company. And it was run by a family member of mine. So I was lucky to, to get that spot because he made a spot for me because he knew I needed a co-op job and it'd be very hard for me to find one with no background. And so he made a slot for me at his company. So I started there and I think I was there for about six months and got an amazing experience in how to make batteries. And to this day, I can talk batteries with people. Then I moved to another company that was called Ford Climate Control. So within Ford, there was a division that manufactured anything related to the climate control in, in the car. And so they'd make radiators, hoses, AC, you know, pumps, et cetera. And so I worked in the Plymouth factory for Ford Climate Control for about a year there. And then that's when I had the problem with my visa when I had to go back to India to get it fixed. When I came back, I got a job with Johnson Controls. And so I was a co-op with Johnson Controls in their seat division for the rest of my co-op term. Wow. So you probably hold a title, which you don't even realize. I've been doing some work on how many hours students at Kettering and GMI going back tend to work. And it's in the three to 4,000. I don't know what it is. Way more than really anybody else. Now, given your three jobs, you must have more hours working by the time you graduate than anybody at Kettering with, or GMI, which tells me that of the 10 million people that have graduated from college in the last 30 years, you have worked more hours than any one of them. I, I got to believe it, it, while you were it, in school. But I never counted them. So and <laughs> it, was, it was fun. So I, I didn't really think of it as work. I just was enjoying my time tutoring kids and, and you know, having a great time in, in school and at the fraternity. So you graduated and you, with these two degrees, did you stay with Johnson or did you go elsewhere? I did. I did. So I was lucky enough to be offered a full-time engineering position with JCI once I graduated. And I stayed with them through 1999, almost 2000. Wow. So now, dramatic foreshadowing here, after all that work becoming an engineer, mm -hmm. you're no longer working as an engineer. Your career took a turn That's right. somewhere in 99. Tell us where you've gone since then. I started with JCI, as I mentioned, and within a few years, I decided I wanted to get my business degree. Again, at that point, I had to make another decision. It's like, do I quit JCI, go to MBA school full time, or do it another way? And JCI, I think, didn't want to lose me, and they decided to actually offer to pay my MBA course load as long as I continue to work there. So I worked days at JCI and I started at University of Michigan Business School. At that time, they had an evening program. So I started in the evening program in 1997 at University of Michigan. Now it's called Ross School of Business. And so I started there 1997. It's a three and a half year program if you're doing it in the evenings. 
But I ended up doing that through, through 1999, ended up then jumping into the day program. Then I quit JCI, jumped into the day program and ended up in Singapore because I got myself on an exchange scholarship to go study business for one semester at NUS, National University of Singapore. So I graduated from Michigan Business School with one term at NUS, but I graduated with an MBA in 2000. And your mind had changed in that, or you had some other opportunities, correct? You know, the business degree opened my mind a little bit more to what I could do. Now, I had gone to business school with this idea that I would just be a business manager. Even at JCI, by then, I had moved on from being just a pure hardcore engineer into being a program manager. I was one of the youngest program managers at JCI. And so I was already starting to see the business side of JCI's business, right? I was responsible for making sure that the project was on budget. I wanted to make sure that the project was being delivered on time, et cetera. So now I was managing timing and budgeting as well as engineering on these, these programs. So that gave me the sort of the, the vision that, Hey, I want to look at something more than just engineering and or how engineering connects with the rest of the business world. So after I finished my business degree, that's when I started becoming interested in investments and in wealth management. And so there was a turning point for me because I was looking at other opportunities just to sort of keep my mind open. And I interviewed with somebody at Goldman Sachs. It was just a pure by chance interview. It just wasn't supposed to happen, but it just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And as I normally do, I just took the initiative to walk into somebody's office to say, hey, I want to talk to you. Let me understand what you do. And this guy happened to work in Chicago for Goldman Sachs in their private client business. I had an amazing conversation with him. And at the end of that conversation, I told him, just literally as straight as I can tell you, I think I can do what you do. I want to do what you want, what you do. And so the guy laughed at me and said, well, we were just talking. I wasn't interviewing you. And I said, well, what does it take? Let's do the interview. And so he sent me off on this journey to go figure out how I could interview with Goldman and ended up getting a job with them after I graduated. Well, so explain to me, as maybe he asked, how does your experience as an engineer, and I've, I've talked to a number of people on this podcast and elsewhere, and I ask this question because people go into all kinds of things after some time in engineering. Engineering is a very solutions-oriented, solve-the-problem type thing, which has a lot of transferability. But how does your engineering transfer skill-wise over to wealth management? Yeah, there are so many benefits of engineering. I can't even begin to tell you how important that engineering background has been to me over the last 20 years, 25 years. But one of them is to basically be able to focus on a problem without letting your mind get distracted or certainly not feeling stress and pressure of, let's say, the investment markets or volatility or somebody screaming on your head at what's going wrong in the world. You just have the ability to sort of put your head down and focus on the problem, try to solve them. And so my job, what I really wanted to do after I left Johnson Control was to become a financial engineer, you know, somebody that used the mix of finance and engineering and try to solve problems for families, individuals, 
people that have money. That's what my job was. I was working at Goldman Sachs in the private client business. And the job was to help clients with their money. So many of these decisions can be very process oriented. And if you apply a process and, and rational thinking, you can actually solve those problems. And so I was very good at solving problems for families. Wow. So you did that from what, 99 or 2000 for how long? I came to Goldman in 2000. I trained with Goldman in New York for about uh, eight months, but I always intended to come to Silicon Valley because of my background in engineering. I that would have been the right move for me. And so if you remember what was going on in 2000 is Silicon Valley was just absolutely blowing up. It was a dot-com so meltdown. That was the, exactly. But, but I didn't know we were in the middle of the meltdown when I was interviewing with Goldman, right? Uh-huh. Everything was going up and to the left. And so I convinced them to allow me to come to San Francisco. And so I moved with Goldman to San Francisco as part of their private client group. When I arrived here, things just started to deteriorate very quickly. So despite my best planning, the next two or three years were absolutely dismal, right? The markets were completely imploding. People were losing money. They were losing their jobs. And and the valley was retrenching. So it was a tough few years, but it was a great few years because I learned so much during that period, which you would never have learned on the way up. So you're at Goldman Sachs in San Francisco for how long? I worked with them until, I guess, uh, February or March of 2004. In 2004, April, I joined Merrill Lynch in their private wealth business. So I just literally walked down the street to another firm because I just began to feel that I wasn't going to be successful at Goldman at the time. Amazing firm, but I just personally felt like I needed to find another place to restart. So I ended up, based on a referral from some friends, met up with a very smart guy in the Merrill Lynch office just down the street. I decided to move to Merrill Lynch, and I started with them in April of 2004. And you were Um, there for quite a while, right? I was there for 18 and a half years. So I grew one of the largest teams in San Francisco for private wealth from, from scratch. Wow. How big was that team? When I left in September of 2022, that team had 10 people. That takes us into and through the pandemic, yep. which was another sort of great change point for you, right? Yep. Yep. During the pandemic, you know, I started to think about how I might reinvent myself. I think to my same the same issue that I had back when I was a GMI, which is things were quiet, they were stable, and I felt like I was losing time. I tried to figure out how could I jumpstart where I was. And I had been dreaming of starting my own firm for years, but just never had the confidence or the impetus or the catalyst to do it. And COVID allowed me to sit back and think through what the long-term picture might look like for my business and for for me. And so I started the creation of what became my firm, which is Scion Capital, back then during COVID. And spell that for us. Scion is spelled S-Y-O-N. And what does that name, where does that come from? 
Sion is an old Sanskrit word, which stands for, or, or basically means followed by good fortune. So now you, in the past year, have been running your own firm, Scion, yep. Ca- is it Scion Capital? Is that the correct name? Yeah. Out of what? The Out of the city, out of San Francisco. Out of San Francisco, that's right. And so tell me a little bit about how that's going. You're still in the first year of the business, although you're almost, you're getting close to the second year. How's yeah. that going? And tell me a little bit about Scion and, and the sort of purview and, and scope of the business. What Scion does is, it's basically a multifamily office. We call ourselves a boutique multifamily office. We deal with select families. And our focus for these families is once you achieve incredible wealth, well, how do you preserve that wealth? How do you preserve it for the next generation? How do you preserve it for charity? How do you grow it? How do you become steward of this wealth? Because let's assume for a second, this is more wealth than you can spend then what becomes the mission of this wealth? Bills are no longer the concern of your daily work environment. You know, that, that is taken care of. So my focus as a, as a family office operator becomes to try to figure out how to optimize a client's full family picture. So we deal with tax issues. We deal with estate planning issues. We deal with family generational issues. Sometimes we help clients get in front of the right physicians and doctors, because I consider health to be part of your wealth. When you think about wealth, is wealth just dollars and cents? Or is your culture, your education, your family situation, is that all part of your wealth? That's how I define wealth. Our focus then becomes trying to help these families improve their overall wealth. And so we stay pretty busy. So in the last one year, almost one year, things have been exciting and interesting and things are going well. But I am absolutely surprised at how many different things I've had to do. You don't begin, when you start a company, you don't quite realize how much more there is to do than what you did. I've learned that one over over my career, and and you're everything from the CEO to the janitor. Yeah, exactly. And so you're the chief everything. When there's nobody to do something, it falls on you. So we've had some interesting experiences, including in this new environment, the business the company that we subleased our office space from ended up going bankrupt. And so we've dealt with you know, bankruptcy of a landlord, effectively. It's been a super interesting environment to, to start a business. But I tell people the best time to start a business might be the time when adversity is high. It might seem like a terrible time, but I will tell you, we've learned so much through that experience. It'll just make us better when the upturns start up. Well, given this whole, and I, I can't imagine anybody better suited to do what you're doing, because I, I personally am very impressed with your description of wealth so broadly, because mm-hmm. our life is more than our bank account. And right. people that define themselves by their bank account, I think, end up running into a cold sweat at three in the morning sometimes because they don't have a life. In any case, I, I think it sounds like a wonderful approach, and I'm glad it's going well. But given through this whole scenario you've been through that you just described for us, if you were to go back, and I'm sure you do, talk with high school kids or kids at uh, a college, whether it be Kettering or somewhere else, what kind of advice do you give them as to how to think about 
where you're going, how to think about structuring your college or your life after college, how to manage your vision. Because you, you've always been driven by a vision, although that's not a, a word we used. What are the most important things that kids can learn from you who are back at that stage you were at 20, 30 years ago? The one thing I will tell you that is most important in my experience is determination. It's not brain cells, it's not IQ. I mean, you you can have kids that are smarter than you, but if you're more determined than them, then you will outperform them. The one piece of advice that I always try to give young kids if they're starting college or when they're starting their new job, just don't give up. When you give up, that's when you failed. If you attack a problem and the problem beats you, that's when you failed. That's been my story of success is that I just don't give up. You just keep well, going until I succeed. You learn more from your setbacks than from your from your successes, usually, in my, in my experience. That's right. And look, your mind will play games with you because your mind will tell you to slow down or stop. Somebody said to me, in a, this person's a runner, and this person was telling me that running is not about your legs. It's about your brain. If you tell, if you let your brain tell you to stop, you will stop. Interesting. Well, Ash Chopra, I really appreciate your time. I think your story is is first of all interesting, secondly inspiring, and I hope people enjoy it. I'd love for us to get you back to to, to Kettering to talk to some people and and share some of this because I think students would would benefit from what you have to share. But congratulations on Scion Capital and uh, continued success. Thank you. I appreciate being on the show. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.